Hello and welcome to Cybernia, a podcast exploring science in Ireland and beyond, brought to you in association with Discover Science and Engineering. Coming up on the show today, Neil Kane talks to Dr. Bobby Smith of the Department of Health and Primary Care at Trinity College Dublin about heroin addiction and methadone treatment in Dublin City. And Sylvia goes to the Natural History Museum to find out what's going on at Dublin's Dead Zoo for this year's Culture Night on Friday, September 23rd. Heroin addiction is a well-known and very visible problem on Dublin streets. For a number of decades, the pink syrup known as methadone has been instrumental in the fight against heroin. Joining us in studio is Dr. Bobby Smith, clinical senior lecturer in the Department of Public Health and Primary Care in Trinity College Dublin and practising child and adolescent psychiatrist specialising in drug addiction. Could you tell me a little bit about methadone as a drug, how it differs from the drug heroin? Uh, Methadone is a drug, I suppose, it's been around for many, many decades now. It operates uh, on the same receptors in the brain as heroin and morphine and dihydrocodone and so on and a range of other drugs that, that deal with the opiate receptor. The main way I suppose it differs from drugs like heroin is related to the its addictive potential and also the uh, euphoric effect that it causes for people. Drugs tend to be addictive and liked by people where they induce sort of a sense of euphoria or a high rapidly um, and what tends to make them very addictive is if that high wears off quite quickly. So the drugs that are really addictive are drugs like heroin and cocaine you get this surge of, of um, drug effect um, and, and then that, the faster that fades away, oddly enough, the more addictive the drug actually is. Methadone differs from heroin in that it, it's consumed orally. So the um, drug gets into your system quite slowly so you don't actually get that euphoria or high that you get with heroin. And equally, it's sort of metabolised by the body quite slowly. Uh, so it... it, it uh, leaves the system quite slowly and uh, you don't get the same sort of withdrawal or or, uh, uh, absence of high effect, I suppose. Um, It also um, allows it to be given orally and maybe once daily. Does that contribute to, I mean, its usage or...? That's certainly, I suppose, one of its attractions as a drug to treat heroin addiction. Um, Heroin addiction, I suppose, is a uh, particularly problematic addiction. It tends to be associated with a really uh, chaotic, disorganised lifestyle. It's very hard to just do the ordinary things that you need to do in life if you're addicted to heroin. Um, It's reasonably expensive. Um, You have to use it three or four times a day. People are constantly um, oscillating between being in an intoxicated state where they're sort of goofing off and falling asleep um, and then hours later then they're, they're in withdrawals which they're sort of experiencing severe flu-like symptoms. Um, so it sort of consumes all of their waking hours really, uh, the use of um, and pursuit of heroin. What methadone allows people to do is it removes them out of that sort of cycle of highs and withdrawals and highs and withdrawals. They take the drug once per day. Uh, It ensures that they avoid um, the unpleasant effects of of heroin withdrawals. Um, They also avoid, I suppose, the huge cravings to use it and allows people just to get on with a normal life. And when it comes to the stage of moving from being on methadone to being on nothing at all, is that a difficult step for addicts or is it usually something that tends to be easy as you've been on methadone and regularised your lifestyle? No, it's it's certainly difficult. I mean, anyone who's been addicted to any drug will know uh, that it's a difficult journey to move towards abstinence and to sustain abstinence. Um, at the drug most people will be, will be familiar with 
uh, either from their own use or from seeing family and friends will be cigarettes. Uh, most people um, who attempt to give up cigarettes fail. Most people uh, relapse uh, on any given episode. Yes, many smokers do manage to kick the habit eventually, but on any given episode uh, where they're attempting to stop cigarette smoking, it's probably only somewhere between 2 and 4% to actually succeed. And it's the same when people try to come off opiates, whether they're trying to stop heroin um, you know, directly on its own by just going cold turkey, or whether they're trying to um, come off heroin indirectly via methadone. So, unfortunately, what we see is that when people do detox from methadone, uh, many of them relapse. Uh, and I guess what we've got to do in those situations is sort of start again, take people back into treatment, allow them reach a position of stability in their life um, and, and, you know, uh, try again, as, as smokers tend to do uh, time and time again. And, you know, for many individuals, they'll reach that time in their life where it becomes achievable. Um, others choose, I suppose, not to not to continue fighting that particular fight um, and they just choose to stay on methadone long term. And I guess as a doctor, particularly a doctor who works with teenagers, you know, I don't want to see people embark on a lifetime uh, on any drug. But um, if it's allowing them achieve stability in their life, it's, if it's allowing them get an education, as it does, if it's allowing them um, enter into and maintain sort of loving relationships, if it's allowing them parent their children, if it's allowing them um, maintain their health and well-being, if it's allowing them, uh, you know, uh, remain happy and content, um, so be it. Could you tell me a little bit about what the clinics in Dublin are like, what sort of scale they run under and what it's like for somebody who is on heroin, wants to get off and wants to start in a methadone programme? What sort of rigours do they have to go through? There's clinics scattered all over over the city um, and I suppose the usual procedure is someone who's addicted to heroin will present themselves to the clinic. They can sort of self-refer. They'll meet someone usually on that day. They might be given an appointment time to come back a couple of days later, but they'll usually get a fairly quick response for that initial assessment. They'll go in and they'll have to give a little bit of a history as to, you know, uh, I suppose what's going on in their life at the moment, which will look at their drug use, but also, you know, how they are in themselves, how they are physically, how they are psychologically, what sort of social circumstances they find themselves in. Uh, they usually then have to give a urine sample, which will be used to provide some objective evidence that they are actually using heroin. And they may have to then um, meet one or two other members of the team before they'd start on treatment. So the usual process was that would be that people would attend a clinic on two or three occasions, meeting different team members. Uh, sometimes the, the doctor, I suppose, inevitably, sometimes the nursing staff, sometimes the counsellors, before they start on treatment so the, the clinical team can get some sense of, you know, what's going on for them. Uh, while all heroin users share the fact that they're addicted to heroin, they often have quite different journeys to reach that particular uh, point in their life. And I guess it's important to get an understanding uh, of that journey for that individual to help guide their particular treatment plan. But they'll usually then be uh, offered a treatment plan, which usually involves methadone. The the short-term goal then becomes stabilisation, which is using the methadone to help them stop using heroin. And then, I suppose, detox comes into the equation once they have stopped using heroin and, I suppose, they've managed to... uh, address the psychological and social factors that were maybe driving their heroin use. For example, if someone's in a relationship with another heroin user who's not particularly keen on stopping their heroin use, it's it's really unrealistic to just sort of say to that person, well, you just need to detox now because you know they're sharing a house with someone who's uh, smoking heroin or, or, or injecting heroin.
One thing I'm curious about is people often remark that Dublin has a heroin problem. Do we actually know quantifiably how how how, how bad the heroin problem in the city is compared to other yeah. you know cities of the same size? Or? Um, Ireland was really odd in the 1990s in that we had a heroin problem that was really severe by any international uh, standards in terms of the numbers of young people who were becoming addicted to heroin. I mean, there's there were there's communities in the north side of Dublin here where. A 15-year-old back in the early 1990s had a one in four chance of being addicted to heroin by the age of 20. You know, and I came from sort of a fairly middle-class background, so I was outside of Dublin, and for us, maybe it was one in four of us went to college. But just that reality that in those communities, um, young men particularly had a one in four chance of being addicted to heroin by the age of 20. But fortunately, that was in the bad old days and time has really moved on since then. And Dublin's, you know, the landscape, I suppose, of Dublin's drug use has changed massively in those same communities. 15 year olds now in 2011, I'd estimate probably have about a one in a thousand chance of growing up to be addicted to heroin. It's really dropped. Um, you know, people would sort of say, well, maybe that's moved into use of head shop drugs or cannabis or cocaine. But um, it's nothing, it's not, you know, drug use is not causing the same carnage and difficulty in those communities um, as was the case just 15 years ago. Outside of Dublin, it's a different story, actually. The problem is growing outside of Dublin. I work specifically with teenagers um, the bulk of whom, you know, present with problems around alcohol and cannabis. But of the teenagers I'm seeing with heroin problems, um, the majority of the teenagers I'm seeing, despite the fact I'm based in the middle of Dublin, um, are, are coming from neighbouring counties. They're coming from Kildare, from Leash, from Carlow, from uh, Tipperary even. Uh, they're not coming from Dublin because young people in Dublin seem to have completely moved away from heroin use, which begs the question, why? Um, and I suppose we did have a, uh, a national drug strategy in Ireland which had its origins really um, in, in the Dublin heroin problems of the late 1990s. That was what provided the momentum behind it. So although it was called a national drug strategy, it was really a Dublin heroin strategy. And it involved bringing doctors, communities, educationalists uh, and so on together to look at treating people who had problems and look at putting in place prevention programs um, for those people at risk, all led really by you know, local drug task forces and there would be a number of local drug task forces here on the north side. And in terms of their core mission, which was to reduce heroin use, it's been hugely successful. I find it confusing in a way how such a success is, goes so unacknowledged. I think people are worried who work in drug task forces and even in treatment services such as my own that if we say, say it too loud, well the problem is now gone and that, that people worry that they'll get they lose their funding where I think it should all, is the other way around and should be the other way around where given that the, they've been successful in what they were trying to success, do um, yeah. surely they should get even more money to, to maintain that success. Do you think that in general the media tends to have more interest in like cocaine or head shops rather than heroin which is traditionally not a middle class drug? I think it does. It's funny I was just talking to a journalist um, a week or so ago who uh, about this issue about growing, you know, about the growing heroin problem outside of Dublin, and she was working with a national media station. She was just saying there's no interest in it. The producers aren't interested in it. The, the, the feeling is that the public aren't interested in, in heroin. There's the, the I mean, as as everyone knows, there was uh, huge attention focused on head shops and the problems associated with them about uh, I suppose 15 or 18 months ago. Um, cocaine seems to get a lot of attention, but this heroin problem that's that's really grumbling away and escalating slowly outside of Dublin I think has been largely ignored unfortunately. 
And do you think that some of the lessons you've learned or of you know successful treatment in the heroin sphere in Dublin can be applied and not only to heroin outside Dublin but to treatment of other types of addiction do the principles go across the board or is it just we have methadone for heroin and that's very useful I think the lesson for the rest of the country if they really want to curtail or, or halt the, the escalation of heroin use is to actually roll out methadone treatment um, methadone is you know, it's certainly not a panacea, it's not a wonder drug. Um, it does what it does, but I suppose one of the things it does effectively is it reduces heroin use, it reduces people's engagement then in criminal behaviour because they reduce their heroin use. It allows them achieve sort of a social and psychological stability. But another sort of um, maybe generally unspoken about benefit of it is that it takes heroin users out of active heroin use and that has knock-on benefits for the communities in which those heroin users live because like all drug use um, you know, drug use is a social behaviour. People get into cannabis because their mates are into cannabis. It's not some nasty, strange pusher who's forcing them to use it or it's because you know, the people they like best in the world whose company they enjoy most in the world tend to be into weed so they get into it and it's the same with heroin. Um, people got into it for largely social reasons that their mates were doing it they decided oh sure why not I'll give it a go um, and what methadone does I suppose is that it, it because it takes heroin users out of the equation uh, or certainly reduces the amount of heroin that they use um, it means that they draw in less additional users so I think one of the reasons why the incidence of heroin use has dropped so much in Dublin um, is because um, you know, there's there's way less active heroin users, and there's also, I suppose, the fact that the 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 older cohort of users have been very much medicalized. I think if if I was sort of sixteen or seventeen and really into into drugs, and if I was looking at, uh, I suppose, the the cohort on methadone maintenance who are generally now in their early thirties, trotting in and out of the clinic every day, it wouldn't exactly draw me to that sort of lifestyle. So I think. Um, sort of an additional effect of methadone treatment is that it has made the whole life and lifestyle of heroin users to be seen to be very unattractive to young people who might be otherwise tempted to try that particular drug. And the other thing to change the subject a bit that I think is kind of interesting is people actually buying methadone on the street and it seems like why would they buy methadone when they could buy heroin or why would they not if they wanted methadone why would they not get it for free in a clinic yeah. do you have any idea why that might we be we did a little piece of research actually on that uh, asking people about whether or not they'd ever you know bought methadone or used black market methadone and if so why and first of all we found it was extremely common uh, the majority of people had actually bought methadone or used black market methadone before entering treatment um, and many continue to, to use it or buy it occasionally while on treatment. Um, and I suppose, you know, from a, a public health perspective, uh, what would be concerning it would be if people were using methadone for intoxicating effects and using it for some sort of euphoric effect. But that seems to be very, very much the minority. As I said, just the, although the, it acts on the opiate receptors the same as heroin, it it act its onset of action is so slow and then um, the, its clearance from the receptors is also so slow that it just it, it's not, you know, doesn't give that really nice high that you get with, with, with heroin. The majority of people who use methadone say that they were using it to manage withdrawal symptoms. Or they, they, they bought it because they were waiting for a place on treatment. 
or the people who were in treatment bought it because they missed the clinic on that particular day or they knew they were going away for a few days and they knew they weren't going to get takeaways from the clinic so they just bought it to carry them through. Others will just decide they don't, they don't like the hassle of attending clinics uh, on, a, on a really regular basis. And when you start in treatment, you've got to go daily and people just, rather than undergo that inconvenience, they, they just choose to buy it. Like you talked about people when they're actually established on a treatment program initially yeah. they go daily like how often do they have to give urine samples how often do they have to come in when they are established on a regular dose after the first month or two um the usual journey into treatment is that you know you'll start off having to attend daily initially one of the dangers of methadone is uh the risk of overdose associated with it if someone takes too much methadone even if they have an established heroin addiction they can die so uh, doctors, we tend to proceed cautiously in terms of, of starting someone on methadone. They'll start off maybe in a dose of 20 milligrams or so. They'll get that for a few days and maybe you'll increase it by 10 milligrams every three or four days up towards an established maintenance dose would probably be 70 to 90 milligrams would be a typical enough maintenance dose. Um, but it can take a couple of weeks to get up to that safe dose. And oftentimes as people are... are moving towards that stabilisation dose, they'll continue to use uh, a little bit of heroin. Issue of, of urine testing then, you know, uh, they'll typically have to give urine sample maybe twice a week during that process just to monitor and confirm their drug use, also to monitor whether or not they're abusing other drugs, such as benzodiazepines, um, where methadone gets increasingly dangerous, I suppose, in terms of overdose is if it's used in conjunction with other sedating drugs, most typically in Ireland, benzos, benzodiazepines, which would be sort of sleeping tablets, uh, and alcohol. Um, so urine testing tends to be done a couple of times a week during that induction phase and then moves to once a week. And I guess there's growing pressure, I suppose, at this stage to reduce the frequency of urine testing even further. Many doctors would feel that it's unnecessary. I personally think it has an ongoing value to monitor someone even during treatment because if they have a bit of a lapse or a slip after a period of stability it allows you to pick it up quite quickly and patients for a variety of reasons can be slow to, to tell you if they've had a slip I think most often because they feel they've left them let themselves down they've let you down whereas if you have the objective evidence at least you can intervene early and try to ensure that a lapse doesn't become a relapse I was I was just curious I mean we, we've talked about heroin and methadone um, are there any other you know uh, drugs that are being sold on the street that are performing similar functions for users as heroin and methadone? Is there any other street equivalents of heroin or, you know, any, any other... Um um, well, I suppose there's no other <coughs> drug that's 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 equivalent to methadone in that, you know, people use it to medicate their, their yeah. withdrawal symptoms. Um, the other drug that's related to methadone would be a drug called buprenorphine, which is also a drug that acts on the opiate receptor. Um, and we're I work with teenagers, and again, we're increasingly using it with teenagers who are heroin-dependent as an alternative to methadone. It's not quite as sedating. You don't have the risk of overdose. It does manage withdrawal symptoms, uh, and some patients prefer it. Um, patients who are on methadone can use heroin on top of it and can get a slight euphoric effect with the heroin, or with the heroin use when they're on methadone, even when they're on a decent dose of methadone. Uh, whereas with Suboxone, it binds to the receptors so tightly that if someone takes heroin on top of, of, of buprenorphine or Suboxone, which is one of its trade names, um, they'll get nothing from the heroin. Uh, well, so people like it for that reason. Other people, other patients dislike it for that reason yeah. because they want to keep the option open of, of using a bit of 
heroin or a bit of gear as they call it uh, maybe at the weekend or whatever so you know buprenorphine is an alternative but again it's an alternative for heroin users there's no similar drug as yet for cocaine users or for cannabis users and now we come back to our Culture Corner section of the show. Um, Culture Night takes place this year on Friday the 23rd of September with many museums, galleries and cultural centres all across the country staying open late to the public. Near FM will be broadcasting live from Culture Night from 4 to 8pm and this broadcast will also go out on Dublin South FM, Phoenix FM and West Dublin Access Radio and you can tune into that on uh, near.ie as well. Um, now one of the museums that's staying open late is Dublin's Natural History Museum and earlier this week Sylvia went along to find out what they've got planned for the evening. I'm here at the Natural History Museum on Dublin's Merrion Square. It's a place that is affectionately known to many as the Dead Zoo because of the large number of animals that have been preserved and are on display in glass cases. And joining me now is Catherine McGuinness, a member of the museum staff, and she's going to tell us what's going to be happening here on Culture Night. Hello, Catherine. Hello, how are you? We have a lot of things happening. As we are very much a family museum, we start quite early on Culture Night. We're starting at four o'clock. And from four to five and five to six, we have some artists in talking about dragonflies. And we are able to make your own dragonfly and you'll meet some very, very big special puppets. The queen dragonfly and her two little minions as well. And you can interact mm-hmm. with the puppets. What, what are they made from? They're, they're two beautiful, they're, well, there's three beautiful puppets. They are made of a mixture of matte, foam matting, inflatable bodies and acetate wings. They're about two metres in size. They're huge and they're beautiful. Oh, wow. What, what kind of age would, would that suit? Oh, that would suit any age from about four or five all the way up to seven or eight. Okay, that sounds good. Mm -hmm. Uh, So that's from four to five. And then what else have you got going on? Then later on from six to the end of the evening, we have our handling collection out on display for people to touch and feel and have a look at. Okay, and I think you're going to show us some items from the handling collection now. Yes, I've got a few of the items that would be on display that night as well. The first thing is this little guy here who is our oh. lynx. Oh my God. So I'm looking at a basically a, a, a dead animal pelt. It's That's like it. A, that, that would look good in my living room, actually. <laughs> well, it does, the, fire. the poor guy was made to, to, to hang on someone's wall, actually. But we have oh. several of these kind of skins in the handling collection. Okay. The idea behind them is that they're not of scientific importance. So people are welcome to touch them and feel them. You'll notice around the museum, it says, do not touch and, and please don't touch the animals. But these ones you can. And we have this guy who's a lynx, who's lovely and soft and fluffy. I'm just going to touch him now, actually. Oh, wow. He's very soft. He is soft. So He's, he's the favourite, generally. Describe him. He's maybe, is he about four foot in length? About four foot in length, yes. When, he's, he, when he's standing, he'd be at the same height as a Labrador, maybe a little bit taller. Okay, and, and he's got all his limbs are, well, here. all his skin is uh, skin. intact. And his claws. And, oh, he's got his claws too. Let's yeah. have a look. Oh, there you go. Okay. Oh, yes, I see the claws now. And he has his and ear tufts, which are very important when you're a lynx. It's unusual, yeah. And he's got, all, he's got his full facial features there. His, yes, um, yeah. snarling mouth. His mouth is open. Angry eyes, the okay. whole lot. <laughs> Okay, so he'll be coming out for, uh, for he's not normally out and about. He's no, it's only for special occasions he comes out and he has two friends, a bear and a tiger. 
okay. who come out as well. Oh, they'll so be out as well. Okay. okay. Oh, wow. Okay. The bear is quite famous because he gets brought out quite a bit. So he's been to the Young Scientist. He's been on RTE. He's he's a bit of a star. Himself. Oh, okay. Okay. So. <laughs> we'll have to come back and see him then mm-hmm. on the night. Uh, so, and what else then are we allowed to touch and feel? Well, we've got one thing here. We've got some mystery objects, which um, are quite strange. Okay. So you're There's showing me a kind of a... A semi-circular, almost like a tusk, is it like a... It is, it's actually a hippo tusk. Wow. And, and for a start, I mean, you're not going to get this close to a hippo it's, tusk. I hope really. not. <laughs> you wouldn't want to, that's true. But it's very heavy. It is actually, and, and there's several heavy. of these in the animal's mouth. So it gives you an idea of kind of the scale of the animal, if that's a tooth. But also a lot of these handling items have interesting stories behind them. And this hippo, Ivory, uh, it was a hippo that was shot by an Irishman, Ty Gaucher. Who worked? Oh. He worked for the UN, and he worked out in the Congo, um, during the fifties and sixties. And this actual animal was uh, killing villagers, really in, close to where he was working. So he was he was called out with his gun, shot the hippo. Uh, it had killed three people by this stage. Wow! Shot the hippo, and then the the local chief gave him the ivory as a as a gift as a prize for saving okay. his village basically oh, okay and how did it come into the museum's collection what happened was unfortunately tyke passed away last year and his his son and his granddaughter donated the items to us and oh, okay. we get quite a few donations like that as oh, well okay okay that's nice that's a quite a nice mm. uh, story yes yeah, so it's not just the object but it's the story behind them yeah 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 well. yeah exactly and sticking with big teeth Oh my gosh! This guy who's going to make an appearance as well. Okay, this is a very big uh, skull with two enormous tusks <laughs> protruding from it. I'm quite scared now. Yeah, this is our, our saber tooth cat. Wow! People would know them as saber tooth tigers. Yes, but yeah. uh, it's it's not. They were never a species of tiger. They're their own cat species in their own right. So we call them saber tooth cats now. And the most interesting, of course, is the big canine teeth, which where they get their name from. There's two very large uh, pointy teeth coming down. But I guess they would sit out over the, the lower jaw. They would hang, jaw. exactly, hang over the jaw. And if you, if you look at the curve, the inside of the curve is very thin and narrow and it's blade-like. And this would facilitate the animal when it's killing its prey to literally dig in and rip open. Oh wow! It's almost like a jagged edge. It, yes, yeah. I mean, it's, yeah. A saber is is a sword, so that's why it gets the name oh, saber okay, tooth. Okay, so sword tooth. Yeah. Mm, there you go. Oh, I, I can see kids would just go wild mm. for yeah. This kind of stuff. <laughs> definitely, definitely. Okay. We'll also have other bits and pieces. We'll have some fossils, and we'll have some meteorites as well. And the wonderful thing with the meteorites is that you're never going to hold anything that old. You're talking four billion years, not even millions of years like fossils, but billions of years. And they're always very, very popular. So we're bringing those out for the night as well. How big are they? They're not too big. They're all kind of fist size, handheld size. Okay. We have other much larger ones in the collection, which take about three men to get in and out of a car. So we'll we'll leave them at home for the night. Okay. Okay. Uh, And what time are you staying open till then on Culture Night? We're open until 9pm. Okay. We'll yeah. also have two tours on as well, a okay. family tour and an adult tour. Okay. And do we need to book or can we just No, we just allocate spaces as, as people arrive. And if, if there's a bit of an overflow, we, we try to accommodate everyone as best we can. Okay, that sounds great. Catherine, mm-hmm. thank you very much. Thank you. And finally, we've just got some time to uh, list off some upcoming science events. On uh, Saturday the 24th of September, Neve Donoghue will be leading a walk of Dublin's Botanic Gardens. Um, she'll be talking about medicinal plants, their history and their role in modern medicine. The walk starts at 2.30pm and you can get more information at botanicgardens.ie. 
World Space Week is an international celebration of space, and this year it takes place from the 4th to the 10th of October. Events are happening all over the world, and our very own Blackrock Castle Observatory in Cork has a number of exciting activities planned, including a talk by a US astronaut and a rocket launch. You can get more details at bco.ie. Maths Week 2011 kicks off on October 14th, um, with activities planned all across the country. You can get info on that at mathsweek.ie. And finally, the Science Gallery's next exhibition is titled Surface Tension, The Future of Water. And the preview party for that is the 20th of October. And you can get more, uh, more info about that at sciencegallery.com. That's all for this week's show, brought to you in association with Discover Science and Engineering. If you want to find us on the web, you can get us at cybernia.ie, at twitter.com forward slash cybernia, and at facebook.com forward slash cybernia. You can also email us at podcast at cybernia.ie. Thanks to all our guests and contributors, thanks to Near FM and to our producer Gavin, and thanks to you for listening. Music